What's up, Accelerators? Welcome to Normalize It, the show where we speak about and explore the business of disability inclusion and accessibility. I'm your host, Cam Baudouin, and on each episode, I'll be interviewing leaders, professionals, and people with lived experiences, and we'll be discussing the challenges, successes, and strategies on how to make this world a more inclusive place. As you know, many organizations are still trying to figure out disability inclusion through a trial and error method. That's inefficient. Stick around to the end of the show to find out how we can fix that. So whether you're an advocate, entrepreneur, business owner, stakeholder, VP, or just someone who's interested in the world of disability inclusion, this show is for you. Let's dive into it. I'm so excited for today's episode. I've got a special guest today, the one and only Christopher Patno from Google. Christopher, how are you? Very well. How are you doing? Christopher, you are the head of accessibility and disability inclusion, EMEA at Google with the key focus on emerging markets. Really interested to hear more about emerging markets because that is something that was so fascinating to me when you and I spoke. It was how do we serve people in markets that don't have you know, the same type of resources as we do, let's say in the West inside developed countries or things like that. So first, I have a couple of questions around that. Like, uh, first off, what do we need to know before you talked about it a little bit? What do we need to know before we even touch on the subject of like, what is an emerging market? Let's even just start there. You might have heard third world countries. It's 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 a similar kind of thing where it's a, it is a, it is a country that is becoming industrialized. So it, it is right now the areas where I'm focused on in particular are, are, are India, uh, Sub-Saharan Africa, and Latin America. So we're, we've, we're, we're, we're kicking off some research in conjunction with AT Scale out of the UN and with GDI Hub, which is part of UCL, trying to understand how mobile devices can be considered assistive tech in themselves. So normally, if you're if you're an NGO and you you go into Africa, you'll give them a wheelchair, you give them a magnifier, you give them these things that are bespoke and and and, and single function. As the technology has, has advanced, as the phones have gotten both more powerful and cheaper over, over 10, 5, 10, 15 years, they become multifunction. So now your Android phone can do it, act, it can act as a magnifier. It can read things out to you that's in the real world, let alone things that are digitalized. So what we didn't understand, what we don't understand, that we're trying to understand is how can an Android phone be a useful and valued tool for someone, say, who is blind or is deaf in, in Africa or in India. So there's a couple of things we have to solve. One is how do we get the, the phones to them? And then how do you train them on how to use it? Because if you don't train someone on how to use a screen reader, for example, the phone isn't that useful. If you don't train, if you don't teach them that these tools exist at all, like live transcribe, live transcribe is a really cool app that can provide real-time transcription in over 80 different languages. And you can type your answer back or or they can correct it and you can just it can let you know when your name is being called. If you don't know it exists, it can't help you. So so awareness and, and understanding of these tools is really difficult. What we're trying to understand as Google is how can we make them better? How can we make both Android as a platform and our assistive technology better? What the AT scale gets to understand, and again, they're part of the UN, is what if you give someone a phone? What will happen? Will they sell it because it, it's valuable, or will they keep it? And 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 how? And if they keep it, how does it make their life better? Does it help them get a job? Does it help them go to school? Can they can they set up a hustle on the side? The, the common thought was that they'll just get sold because people need money. But my my the, where I accounted was well, if it's not too expensive and you teach them how to use it, if it's more valuable as a tool, it's more valuable. They're not going to sell it because it makes their life better. Is that what you're already seeing? So so people are are keeping these as tools 
And I want to talk about how you even train people in a moment. So, and I remember once hearing the same arguments when people were saying, when I donate money, I want to buy a goat in Africa for, 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 a, for someone like as for a family. And then the argument that was the same argument, well, they'll just sell the goat and then they'll take the cash. And then it turns out that it was better for a family to learn how to use the goat to graze and to, to care for crops and do all these other things than just to sell it right away. It was that short term. Now, of course, I'm sure there were some people who just sold it right away. I mean, every there's the other argument as well, just give people cash because that's the best way they can serve themselves. That's a whole other argument. But, you know, what are you seeing so far? Like, so people are now using these as tools. Um, how do you train them? You know, what are some, like you've talked about some of these unique challenges and obstacles. Um, what's maybe the biggest one? And I probably kind of already know the answer to that, but uh, probably relationships or something like that, even just going in and meeting the people. But, and how do you overcome that? The interesting thing is one of the biggest challenges you have is legally being able to, to, to buy phones in countries sometimes because there's so many rules about money laundering. So it's actually taken a lot longer to get started on the research that we wanted because of these, these, these international laws. So we announced it in May, and only now are we starting to do, to do a real distribution of devices. So we don't yet have answers. So let's talk in a year, and hopefully we'll have something a little more a little more rich to, to talk about in terms of the findings. But to answer the question, how do you teach about this sense of technology? What what we're proposing, and we'll and we'll see how it goes, is distribute phones to and and, and we're, we're focusing on on the the, the deaf hard of hearing community and the blind and low vision community the deaf and hard of hearing tools are pretty straightforward so we're gonna we're i think the plan was about 50 phones a week and then google provided training and then we provided training in in, in the, the languages of the countries and then they trained the, so we're working with trainers in country and they're going to do the training and, and they're going to build up a relationship with these people and teach them how to use it the vision tools though were, were, was interesting because a screen reader is quite a, a difficult thing to learn. So this is being broken up into two halves. There's the beginning day, and then there's a more advanced day. So that, that training takes multiple days because you they need to get it under their fingers, both literally and figuratively, that it needs to become more natural. Then once they understand how to use it, then you can teach them about the, the rotor of your iOS or the, the, the contextual menus, all the things that make a screen reader actually really cool and easy to use. It's really easy to use once you learn it, but getting to that point is, is hard. Of course, yeah. And especially if to some people, this may be the very first phone that they have ever owned before. So not only do you have to teach the technical aspects of how to use the screener itself, but you have to use talk to how to use the phone, introduction to, to mobile devices. The interesting challenge is getting devices that are completely, that, that are, you're gonna say completely accessible, that are, that are, that are accessible enough. So the, the interesting story is that the original phone we, we, did, we purchased for, for, for Kenya, when we turned on the talkback, the skin that this, I don't want to name any names, but the company that made this these phones, they added a skin on top of Android to make it unique, but they didn't bother to make that skin accessible. So the Android underneath it was accessible, but they, they added their own stuff on top and that wasn't accessible. So they couldn't make a phone call. They couldn't use the camera. They couldn't do so many of these important things for a phone. So wow. we literally yeah. had to, the day we were doing the training, put these phones at their side, run to uh, jump into a friend's Prius, run to the Samsung store, turn on TalkBack, get everything works, go back and and and, and do the training with with phones that were of the right price point and were accessible. So wow. the interesting thing is, even though we are building an accessible Android, and again, it's never perfect, the the stuff that people put on top of it, it's not it's just the apps because we all know that apps themselves don't are are way too often not accessible. 
but sometimes the skin that an OEM would add to the phone is not. So one of the, 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 the second thing that I'm doing right now is I'm partnering with, with uh, some telcos and phone manufacturers in Africa and try to teach them how to make things more accessible. And for me, this is, this is the, so one of these legacy kind of things if it goes really well. So here, here's where it goes. If we can convince a telco to make, make their phone accessible, they've learned how to do it. And if, and if they've learned how to do it, we, can get, we have a chance of convincing them, well, tell all of your OEMs, all the people that phone you sell, it has to be accessible. And they'll do it because they want to sell for you. But they're not just going to do it for, for this company in Africa. I used to work at Sony Ericsson, and I know how these, these, these things work. You build one platform and you give it to everybody. So if this telco in Africa says all of our phones have to be accessible, all of these companies will make all of their phones accessible. And it's going to help Southeast Asia. It's going to help America. It, so it becomes this, this domino that, 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 that could potentially trigger a worldwide change in terms of, of accessibility of these devices. Right. Right, right. That's so fascinating. You know, using different telcos in that way. I mean, using different organizations. You know, what's what's a small change that you can make over here that will make big impact in another area? Like that is a perfect example of it. And do you, in your opinion, now that I mean, you've worked at large organizations and and helped out multiple like large organizations. Do you feel like the arguments are the same? Do you feel like the objections are the same coming from these telcos in, in Sub-Saharan Africa or in India? Are, were the same ones that you heard in like in America? Are they different? Are they similar? Like the, like the, how do you overcome that? It's too hard. I don't care. There's not enough people. What's the ROI? All, all, the, all the same things. So what we, what we have to do is we have to partner with, with people in, in the company, people in country to understand what's a locally relevant story for that leader. And then we have to realize that we're gonna to have to tell the same story 10 different times, going up and down, going up and down the chain. Um, but that that story also has to change in each of these different things. But being being a white guy in in, in England, I can't tell the right story in Africa, or I can't tell the right story in, in, in India or, or Latin America. So we have to partner with people there who have local relevance, who have who are of the community, who have the ear and can tell a story that can make a difference. And then we partner with people inside the organizations to make sure that we understand what this VP or what this the CEO cares about. And then we create the, the locally relevant, individually relevant story, get to cover and then work with their peers and their, their staff and then work with their staff. And it's, it, it, it's the same thing, but we it, it's almost via proxy, which makes it kind of fun. Well, I think that this is, you, you know, you're saying something that I try and talk about a lot. Storytelling is just so incredibly valuable in our industry, even in the fact like at the very the first questions I was asking about the leadership qualities that we're talking about. You know, we don't talk about storytelling enough, but that will move people understanding that in my community, these are the people that I'm directly affecting. I'd love to hear, like, do you have any stories that you could share? Like it was something that you could, could share that that worked? When we were working with Safaricom, the, the, one of the largest telcos in Africa, they have a, a large history of, of supporting the community in the employment side. And right now we're, we're in the middle of having conversations with them, trying to, well, it's the left hand and right hand. You're hiring these people and that's amazing, but all, not everything you're making works for them. So how can how do you sort of keep these two things in in, in, in cognitive dissonance, and why don't you do something about it? So it, it, it it's a work in progress, but it's a work in progress for every company you're ever going to go to because there's always new people coming in. There's always new technology that gets to be hard. There's always a new lawsuit that's coming at you that sounds scarier or more expensive or all all those things. Yeah, yeah, I love that. You know, finding what's relevant to the people uh, that are that are listening. Christopher, I want to learn a little bit more about 
measuring and how do you know if your impact is actually successful, especially in emerging markets where maybe technology is still developing and things like that. So where do you even start to know is your impact making it through to the right people? Is your impact even making an impact? There's no easy answer to this. And, and, and I, th I think if I gave you a, uh, here's the answer, you should accuse me of lying because it's, it's, it's way too complicated. It is everything from the much more profound impact of, of, of a feature for someone with disability with, with disabilities. It's, it's the same thing everywhere. It's the same problem we have everywhere. But the, we have the additional challenges in which there is not the availability of the technology in quite the same way. Often devices are older and networks are, are non-existent or networks are, are slower. We have situations in some places where you don't have power on a consistent basis. So the, measuring the impact is, is more difficult. And, and I'm, I'm sorry, I, I don't have a good answer. So I, it even makes me wonder, is it worth it to measure the impact or is that the wrong question to even ask? I'm thinking even, you know, in any organization that people might support, that's always, that always comes up at some point. What's the ROI? You know, how do I know I'm getting value out of this? And it's slowly becoming a realization to me, even though I'm comfortable having discussions with executives and board members and, and what have you, that maybe we need to divert that question to, to something else where, uh, and I'm not sure what that question is just yet. Um, what do you think is a better way to, to measure success? So for, for me, it, it's, it's the combination of qualitative and quantitative. So the qualitative, the story, the storytelling is an important part of, of this. The problem with numbers is they're either too big or too small. You're never going to get a, a, a fact that meets everyone's needs the same way you don't have, a, you can't have a, the same argument that meets everyone's needs. At a company like Google, where we have some products that have multiple billions of people, if we tell them that we have made the lives better of, of 20,000 people, some teams might say, well, that, 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 that number is because we work at such a scale, maybe that number isn't isn't the right number to say. But if you're if you're a new company and you just in, and you're just coming out and you're going to impact less than twenty thousand people, it could be a really big number for for, for the, the the scale of what you're doing. So, I try not to talk about numbers. So ROI, I don't I don't go about numbers because the numbers will, will always be wrong. I always try I try to talk about the profundity of impact of the, of the individuals. So I lean in on the storytelling of the of, of this stuff. And then I lead into the the, the risk the risk abatement for again different people are, are are motivated by different things. There's the the FOMO people. There's the risk people. There's the lawyer people, and they all have different things that drive them. So that that question of what's the ROI it really depends on what's their ROI. Yeah, that uh, that's why I've been trying even myself to move away from saying one in seven people worldwide have a disability. The number is too large. I mean, one person, one company, one organization cannot affect 1.3 billion people. So therefore, it's almost easier just to say, ah, let's not worry about it. You know, I've even taken that number and applied it to organizational, uh, you know, how many employees do you have? Well, I can just do a bit of math and calculate how many people with disabilities I can estimate at your company. And it's a lot easier to use that data because that's, again, building a story around what it is. You know your company, you know the organization, you know your peers. Well, in your team, like maybe these are real numbers that you should be looking at. And I, I think that's like a much better way to tell a story than just to throw numbers up on the screen and say, you know, hey, 1.3 billion people worldwide. It's almost like you want to say, so what? The number's too big. I just, I just can't fathom that. We also can't trust the number because in some countries, there's so much stigma, especially in emerging markets. There's so much stigma around disability. Some people don't talk about it. Some countries, India, I think they said they have 2%, a population of 2% with disabilities. Well, statistically, that's not likely. 
but this is the number that, that we have. So even that number of 1.3 billion, 16% of the world doesn't really mean anything because we, we don't necessarily understand or trust the methodology of how it's created because of these external factors. They might be the best researchers in the world, but it's garbage in, garbage out. Right. I, I like that expression. That's very, you know, very technical term as well. I'm sure it's used in other areas, but I know it's a very coding term as well. Gar garbage in, garbage out. That was a really interesting thing you just brought up, talking about, you know, when you're researching or when you're entering a country and trying to ask or figure out, you know, what is a disability, especially in these emerging markets. I know uh, my wife is from China and China, they're very resistant to even talk about disabilities. It's it's a different conversation over there, but fascinating all the same. In fact, here's a tidbit of information. The first school for the deaf that was opened in China was op was was not opened by someone who was Chinese. It was actually a, uh, a missionary who went over to China and opened up the, the school. And they're they teach Chinese sign language. They didn't bring in American sign language, which is an interesting, interesting fact. But in different markets, the, the way we talk about disabilities is completely different. In developed markets in, or, or in the West, we could say Canada, United States, and most of Europe, the language around disabilities is more comfortable. I mean, even just look at the group of people who are joining this conversation right now, we're willing and able to talk about disabilities in a certain way. How do you even break that stigma about opening up the conversation with somebody who has maybe never even admitted to having a disability or, or talking about disabilities. What's interesting to me is when we did some research in terms of what understanding the state of this, the state of disability in, in, in Africa, um, it was surprised to me how much things that were rural, which was, was you were cursed or your family was cursed. And that's why, that's why you have a child with a disability. And that's why you have a disability because you were cursed or someone cursed you. Um, that you can't fix that with with technology that that's a culture shift and it's not true in all places but it, 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 these stories came often enough that I, that it's i think it's real and that's something that we can't solve as technologists but it's something that we have to be aware of if we want to build technology that can actually meet people's needs and that even talks a little bit about you know the little the smaller microcultures that we have in in an organization or in our in our societies in family units even here in Canada or, or in the United States you know talking to different organizations are going to have different cultures we need to understand and respect that as well uh, and, and I know when you're talking about you know curses and I've heard the same thing for people going to offer vaccines to people in uh, to Africa same kind of arguments come up I don't want because because this could happen and so now what do, uh, how do you address that that's really fascinating so what are some upcoming projects or sneak peeks of some new stuff that you're working on and new organ new countries that you're trying to uh, uh to penetrate or is there is there a new technology that you're trying to bring in uh new software i'm really curious to know if there's any anything on the on the bleeding edge one really neat piece of research that we've recently done is, is with a tool called project relate and this is a tool that allows someone to create a dedicated individualized voice model so you, you, you read a couple hundred phrases into your phone. We, we come back with a model that allows you to uh, be, you can dictate into it, or you can copy paste it and, and send it, or you can do a Google Assistant command, or it can repeat what you said. And we're starting to do these kind of uh, studies in Africa because African English accents are, are just different enough. We want to make sure that, that the AI models support all the different kinds of accents. So what's really interesting to, to me is with these new large language models that are coming out they have they're really really good with language and can we use these to uh, to, to to drastically improve the number of languages that we support when it comes to assistive technology 
the, the text-to-speech, the speech-to-text, all that kind of stuff. This is we're just scratching the surface here, but I think there's there's a lot of the bones are good when it comes to these models. When 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 create a drastically larger number of of languages for these assistive technologies, and that's going to unlock the, the the technology and unlock accessibility around the world because. We may have 80 different languages, and I don't, I don't know the number off the top of my head, but there's thousands of languages around the world. And if you don't happen to speak one of those 80 languages fluently enough, you can't, you, you can't use this technology to make your life better. So the more we can use these AI technologies to create more languages in, in the assistive technologies, then we really get to have that impact of approaching that 1.3 billion people who could be helped with these kind of technologies. Right, right. You're touching on something that I'm so fascinated in the evolution of AI, especially in the world of accessibility. Like, what is it? So in your mind, is AI, is AI painting a bright or a bleak future? I have to change the question. I think there's there's different kinds of AI. So you, so it's not really fair to say it's bright or, or, or bleak. In 2009, Google started, YouTube started our first experiment in, in automated captions. That was AI. That AI has been, been it's getting better and better over time. Um, if you look at with Google Lookouts, with all the OCR and, and, and speech to text and ability to, we, we just recently announced as part of the, the latest version of Lookouts, um, the ability to, to use an AI model to describe pictures. So if someone to send you a picture of something, you can, you can give it to a model and we'll give you really cool, a really thoughtful description of it. Yeah, not perfect, but a good thoughtful description, but you ask questions about the picture. So one of the videos I saw when we were first when we were first building it had a picture of a dog on a beach, and 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 you send it to it and it came back. I see a dog on a beach playing with a ball, and you could say, "What well, are the clouds in the sky?" No, there are no clouds in the sky. There's what kind of dog is it? The dog's a mutt. I mean, some really neat things that AI can help you with, but you have to partner with the community to understand what's important. So. The question really is, is it bleak or is it or is it is it bright? The question is who are you working with to make it better? Because it can be both. It, it, it's like karma. It's not good or bad, it just is. And what you do with this energy that you have, what you do with this technology that you have, depends on the, the context and what you're trying to do with it. And we need to partner with the community to make the tools that meet their needs. AI is just another tool. It's another tool. That's something that we, I had another guest on the show and we were talking about uh, biases in AI and, and what that really means for the end user or the people that are using it. And we couldn't really get off the fact that it's not the technology that's the problem. It's the, the, the humans behind it, right? It's the humans who are building in the biases. It's the humans that are building in the imperfections because AI is just the medium. It's, it's just the in between uh, the, the two points. And that was such an interesting conversation to have because we were going a little bit back and forth on, you know, where is the bias come from? And it's, well, it's the training the models and it's training this. And it's like, well, who's training the model? Well, that's people. Okay, well, it's, if it all comes back to the person, if it all comes back to the people training it. I almost think it's like we have to give a bit of time, even even right now, what we're seeing huge advancements in Google Bard or other, other uh, AI software or, or technology, rather. We haven't given it nearly enough time to make a, an informed decision, whether it's it's good or bad, we're going to revolutionize. It will revolutionize. Uh, it is revolutionizing. Uh, and you gave a great example of YouTube's uh, transcription. I remember, yes, nine years ago when it was infant in its infancy. And it was more than nine years ago. It was two thousand. It was two thousand nine. So it was like two thousand nine. Yeah, almost fifteen years ago. Where and and it, it, 
but what we learned is that something that's imperfect is better than nothing that's perfect. And 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 that remember how at the very beginning we started talking about uh, give yourself permission to screw up, give yourself room to grow. Here, this is a great example of that. The technology gets better and better and better over time as long as you don't give up. That's right. Yeah, and giving the, us as the community of of professionals, giving that company or giving that person the time to improve their technology as well. I think that's like that's a really key part of of what we do. Uh, and I don't think that's one more thing that we don't talk about enough is that giving people the space and feedback. There's a lot of sometimes noise that comes out of the community saying, you know, this this is no good. Therefore, you know, it it, it sucks. Like it's, it's, it's bad for yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Therefore. And yet I think the conversation and it's, it's not everyone. I know this because I have one on one conversation with many people and they say, yeah, it's not good yet. I have a friend who's deaf who uses you, you mentioned it, the Google live transcribe. Live transcribe. He uses that. Yep, he uses that because it trains his voice, and that was that was such a great um, tool for him because when he speaks into his phone for all the rest of uh, any any home devices, it doesn't understand him. Yet that will that was trained on his voice, so he can he can use it. And I think that was a uh, a really great example of something that you know he was a beta tester for it as well. Technology has a history of overselling. So people have expectations and and, they, and and often companies, I won't name any names, but often companies won't acknowledge that they're not perfect because they, they, because the, because the, 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 the halo effect is, is that everything is, everything is right here, but it's never every, it's never perfect for everybody because it's, it's the technology evolves over time. People's changes, heck, somebody's, my needs change from the morning to the evening. And I have to have my technology that allows me to, 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 to raise, make, make the fonts bigger in the evening than, than what I need in the morning. It's not just because of glasses, it's just because I get tired. My dyslexia gets harder. It, it gets harder to read things as I get tired. I can read the same thing three times and get four different lists. Now, just for a wrap up, I've read before that you talked about you fell into accessibility because something wasn't working for you, your own product wasn't accessible. Uh, what was that like? Because I love drilling into people's like aha moments where like it didn't make sense before or it didn't click before, then all of a sudden it was, Oh, that's why. Now this is the only way I'm going to move forward with this. What was your aha moment? What was that? What was that? Time? So just just quick background on, on my, my context. I, I'm, I I shouldn't be working at Googler. I sort of fell into this. I'm a, I'm a failed musician. So I, I studied music in school, and in my mid twenties, realized I wasn't very good. So I, I gave up on music, and and, and uh, but I was raised in California in, in Cupertino. I I spent ten years at Apple working on the first iPod, the iTunes, G4 towers, G5 towers, and stuff. Spent a couple years at Sony Ericsson making phones. Spent a year at Disney making games, and I've been at Google now for 11 years. But I learned about accessibility here at Google. So 18 years into my second career, I finally learned about it. I was the lead technical program manager for Google Play Music. And I had a test engineer come into the meeting. She had turned on voiceover. Yes, voiceover. And I said, button, 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 button. And she said, well, this is Google Play Music for someone who's blind. I said, well, that's stupid. How could they use it? And she said, they don't. That's why I'm here. That was my aha moment. And within a couple of months, I volunteered to take on accessibility for the Google Play suite of products, in addition to my work on, on, on Play Music, that I did a dalliance in AR and VR, and then I joined the Central Accessibility team about seven years ago. And my, my first job in accessibility there was to make all of Google's products accessible. Oh, and what small we task, was, just a small task. Just, just a little job, a little job. A little, little thing, just a little. Um, just... But, so what we did, we built accessibility teams in, in, in the organizations that didn't have them. So we we learned how to tell that story. We learned how to to how to speak the language of leadership in each of these different organizations by partnering with people on the side. And then and then 2020 happened, and and I I'm not here. That's that's cool. 
Uh, well, Christopher, it's been a pleasure having you on. Any final thoughts to anyone? What's your one takeaway that you want listeners to to remember? Two things. Okay, one, two. Okay, fine. I'll let you. Don't don't burn out because when you're especially when you're getting started, you have a missionary like zeal, and I know yes. I as well. And yep. it's too 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 easy to burn out to care too much, and and then and then then you're no good to anyone. So it, it's better to be executive eighty percent of everything you got for 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 twenty years instead of one hundred and fifty percent for five. And, and and the second thing is nobody knows what you don't know, but everything with a sense of authenticity and honesty and do what you think is right. And, and you'll be surprised how often that really helps because you're going to make a mistake. But if you come at it authentically, if you say the wrong thing to the wrong person, if you describe someone the wrong way, if you make a mistake saying this bug is important or it's not, is the authenticity that makes such a big difference. Like, this is, I believe this to be true and here's why. And if you make a mistake, it's your chance to learn and their chance to learn as well. Wasn't that a great episode? You probably have lots of new ideas swirling through your head right now. Now, how are you gonna go and teach that to your boss, your team, or your clients? You need a strategy to move forward. Contact me today, hi at cambodwine.com and let's talk about how we can move this forward in your organization or individual practice. If you could right now, like and subscribe to this show, it really does help grow our reach to get more people involved and interested in disability inclusion and making the world a more inclusive place. And don't forget, you can also watch this show live on LinkedIn. Just find me there. It's every Friday at noon Eastern. See you next week.